Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. All right, guys, before we get into the sixth chapter of Rules for Radicals, I do have a quick story I want to tell. Anyone that's listened to one or two of my episodes should know by now that I really enjoy the kind of unusual, quirky, sort of coincidental stories from history. And on Tuesday, December the 7th, uh, obviously the History Channel was devoting their entire day's programming to the attack on Pearl Harbor. One of the shows I watched really didn't deal with the attack itself. It dealt with the 24 hours after the attack and what FDR was doing and and how he was going about preparing for his address to Congress and, of course, the day that would live in infamy speech. But there was an interesting little sidebar to that day, and then within that show, they devoted maybe five minutes to this. But one of the things that they put a lot of emphasis on that particular day, not so much FDR, but the Secret Service themselves, was going to be the car ride from the White House to the Capitol building for FDR to give his speech. Now, you got to remember, we had just been attacked. It came out of the blue. Everybody was in panic mode. Nobody knew what was going on. And the Secret Service, on a day where I'm sure they consider this possibility, but they don't really feel that it's a high probability, was the fact that somebody could attack the presidential motorcade as it was going through the streets of Washington, D.C. Now, following the sneak attack from Japan, they were really concerned that maybe there were saboteurs in the going to be in the crowd. Maybe Japan has agents stashed all over the country just looking for targets of opportunity. And there was something kind of odd on the rule book back in that time that said that the federal government could not purchase a vehicle that cost more than $750. Now, isn't that a quaint little notion? The federal government limiting how much they can spend on something. I mean, can you imagine the government doing that today? the government giving two craps about how much money they throw at something. But back in 1942, or 41, I'm sorry, the government was not allowed to spend a lot of money on a vehicle. Now, the president did have a presidential limousine, but it was just a car off a car lot, just the same as anybody else could go down to Crazy Eddie's and drive one off the lot. It was just a car. Now, the Secret Service was very concerned that somebody might start shooting at the motorcade, maybe even bomb the motorcade. So they did not want to drive FDR all the way across the city in just a regular car. They didn't think they'd be able to protect him. And like I say, in this climate, they really expected that something might happen. Well, apparently there was a discussion had of what they could possibly do. And somebody remembered that when Al Capone was arrested, a lot of his property was seized by the Treasury Department. And Al Capone had had a very expensive hand-built, bulletproof car built that he could drive around the city in Chicago in, and the Treasury Department had it sitting in storage. Now, I don't know where it was stored. It had to be somewhere close because they got it. Not only did they get it to the White House for the president to ride in, but they were able to get it running. You know, if a car sits for a while, you've got a lot of work that you're going to have to do if you want to get it back on the road. Sitting is really hard on a car. And this was 1941. I think Al Capone was arrested in 1933. So this car had been sitting in storage at least for a couple of years. Now, I'm sure while the trial was going, they may have had to move it around. And of course, they had to get it from Chicago to D.C. You know, for them to get it to D.C., it had to have been stored in or near the city of Washington, because back in those days, you can't get anywhere quickly. But the Secret Service got Al Capone's bulletproof limo out of storage, got it running. And that is the vehicle that 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt rode from the White House to Congress to give his speech the day after the attacks on Pearl Harbor. It's just one of those coincidental things that it almost sounds like it's made up from a story, but that's that's actually how the drive from the White House to the Capitol building went that day. He was in Al Capone's car. I had never heard that story. Um, it's sort of, it's kind of small potatoes given that what else was going on that day. But that's an interesting story, and maybe that's more common knowledge than I'm aware of, but I had certainly never heard that story. Stuff like that, I just find fascinating. That is interesting to me. But let's jump into uh, Chapter 6 of Saul Linsky's Rules for Radicals. This chapter is simply titled In the Beginning, and this chapter deals pretty much exclusively with when he would show up on the scene of a new place he was trying to organize, the sort of things that he would do to kind of ingratiate himself into the community, make the people trust him, just to get them to start to see that if they'll group together and work toward one goal, they can make some real progress and overcoming the obstacles to doing those things. This is the first chapter of this book where there's really anything that I would consider kind of procedural. This is still, it's filled with a a lot of flowery prose and anecdotes But like I say, this is the only chapter that I've gotten to in this book where he's actually saying, you know, this is how I go about doing things. This is a good idea for any organizer. And it's about time. We're three quarters of the way through this book. Now, maybe I'm kind of expecting something that the book isn't going into it. You know, I was sort of expecting almost like a textbook. You know, here's how you do things. And that's really not what this book has been to this point. But we are finally getting into some things where he would talk about his methods for building an organization when he goes into a new area, a new neighborhood. Alinsky begins the chapter by talking about one of the first neighborhoods he ever tried to organize. It was the Back of the Yards neighborhood in Chicago, Illinois. Now, the Back of the Yards is the area of the city that was part of the meatpacking district. Uh, Chicago used to have a huge beef stockyard, uh, probably pork and chickens and everything else too, but they were known for beef, which is why Chicago historically has some of the best steakhouses in the country. But the back of the yards is the neighborhood, uh, if anyone is familiar with Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, that is the neighborhood that that book was based on. I have never read The Jungle. I don't know if it's sort of a novelization of the things that he witnessed there, sort of a, you know, based on a true story kind kind of novel, or if it is just sort of an expose fiction book, or I'm sorry, nonfiction book. I don't know, uh, but I do know that the the jungle was the basis for the movement to introduce government regulations into the meatpacking industry. Uh, that's actually what the book itself did not directly lead to the Food and Drug Administration being formed, but it was definitely a factor in that. The jungle deals with just the horrible, horrible practices in the meatpacking industry back in the early 1900s. Lack of sanitation and just the horrible practices, and you never know what you're getting in your meat. That is the basis for all the inspections and regulations dealing with meat packing. Again, I've never read that. That's that's a book I need to pick up and read to see what it's all about. Older books I've tried to read, I usually don't have a great deal of success getting through them. The Just the language they use in those books and the way the stories are structured, it's so different than it is now. It's just like movies. If you watch movies from the 60s, they're just 
they're very slow. There's not a lot going on in those books. They just It's more character studies than anything. Just to give you an example of this, I had never watched Taxi Driver. And during the lockdown, it was a cold, snowy day in the winter, and I come across Taxi Driver on either Netflix or Amazon. And I thought, you know, I've got all afternoon to kill. I'm going to sit down and watch this. I'm glad I watched the movie. Uh, that was not... You know, by my estimation, it's not an entertaining movie in any way, shape, or form. Um, I'm glad I watched it. You know, you watch this stuff, you understand a lot of the pop culture references and stuff. It's always better to have seen this stuff than not. I will never watch Taxi Driver again. Like I say, it's a good story, but it is, you know, it's an hour and a half long, and there you feel like there's enough stuff in the movie to maybe feel 30 minutes. Uh, the long shots of him driving around the city at night are great once or twice, but when that's half the movie it's a little bit dull in my opinion and i ran into the same thing with older novels but i would like to pick up the jungle and give it a read just to see what it's all about but solinsky traveled to the back of the yards to organize the the meat packers maybe try to get unions going i think it was more of a community type thing that he was going for but one of the things that he did before he even went to Chicago is he started making very inflammatory comments in the press aimed at the meatpacking industry and he says the reason he did this was he wanted to make himself such a nuisance that some of the bigger companies that controlled that area started attacking him in the press. They started calling him a nuisance, you know, public enemy. He was stirring up trouble where they didn't need to be. The reason that he did this was he said that by getting the meatpacking industry to label him an enemy, the people in that neighborhood would sort of view him as one of them. He was you know, fighting the good fight against the same people that they wanted to. Now, I feel like that's a clever way to go about it, and it's certainly pragmatic, but I kind of feel like that's a little bit manipulative. Again, we're dealing with, you know, a book that, you know, the tagline for this book could be the ends justify the means, and maybe you have to do that with people. Uh, one of the things that he talks about in this chapter is people rationalizing their situations you know, I can't do anything about, you know, the low wages at the meatpacking plant I work at because, you know, there's there's this obstacle that I can't do anything about. So he's kind of sidestepping a lot of the distrust that people would have for an outsider coming in by making himself sort of by de facto part of their movement even before he got there. And he's talked about all through the book, you know, you have to find common ground. Well, this situation, he found a way to put himself on common ground before he even got there without having to do anything. And in the book, he, or in this chapter more specifically, he uses the term getting your birth certificate, which in this situation, what he's referencing is, you know, the people know who you are and they trust you now, so you can go forward with other things. You've gotten past the initial hurdle of getting people to trust that they can work with you on their issue. Solinsky believes that that is the most necessary step, and obviously it's the first step, because people's fear of somebody from the outside will outweigh their fear of the situation they're in. And Alinsky even says in the, on the first page of this chapter, it is a sad fact of life that power and fear are the fountainheads of faith. And I've said all along concerning the COVID and the lockdown, the government wants us to be afraid because people that are afraid are easier to manipulate. You know, People will act on things that they normally wouldn't if they're afraid. And Alinsky is trying to use people's fear here to sort of motivate them to fight back against the situation they're in. And he feels like that if they aren't afraid, he says hope is a good thing, but hope doesn't work toward action because everybody's going to be hoping for something a little bit different. 
But most people are going to be afraid of a lot of the same things in this situation, you know, having enough food to eat, a decent place to live, uh, job stability, things like that. So he was trying to tap into people's fear to get them motivated to let him come in and begin the organization process. Alinsky also believed that this was the best way to start breaking through the rationalizations that people have about their situation. Now, when people are in a bad situation and they've been there for a while, they're going to have an unending list of excuses of why they cannot do anything about the situation they're in. And we all see it in our lives. You've had friends, and probably a lot of you have been in a situation where you're in a job, you hate it, you dread getting up and going into work every day. But then people say, well, you know, why don't you look for another job? You know, find something you like better. And the person will never take that first step of starting to keep their eye open for a new job. Even though they hate it, they don't want to be there, they'd be much happier somewhere else, in some cases just anywhere else, but they won't look for the job. They won't do the work to get themselves out of that situation. You know, we're very good at getting comfortable in bad situations. You always hear, you know, the devil you know. There's a reason that that is an idiom that's survived the test of history, and it's because it's true. People will put up with things that they know and are familiar with, even though they don't like those things, just because it's familiar. You get comfortable in the routine, even though you hate the routine. And Alinsky says that that is the next big hurdle in organizing a community is to break through the rationalizations that people have concerning why they're in that situation and why they'll never be able to get out of it. Uh, an excerpt from the book or the chapter here is learn to search out the rationalizations, treat them as rationalizations, and break through. Do not make the mistake of locking yourself up in conflict with them as though they were the issues or problems in which you were trying to engage the local people. Basically saying, you know, don't argue about the rationalizations. Point them out as rationalizations. That will start the process of people beginning to think of them not as this giant wall that they can never get across, but something that they can find a way around. Alinsky believed that once people make that step, once they start seeing that not as a barrier to getting to where they want to go, but a hurdle that they have to find their way across, that's when a community will start to have power because they'll start to see that they can make some changes, they can improve their lives. Alinsky says, power is the reason for being for organizations. When people agree on certain religious ideas and want the power to propagate their faith, they organize and call it a church. When people agree on certain political ideas and want the power to put them into practice, they organize and call it a political party. The same reason holds across the board. Power and organization are one and the same. One of the examples that Alinsky gives of communities beginning to see that they have the power to change their situation was an example from his own past, and again, this book is full of anecdotes and stories from Saul Alinsky's past, but he said that, you know, you want to get a small victory starting out. It doesn't have to be anything major, but you have to show the people that the organization working together will will get them some results. He gave an example of he was in an, a neighborhood in, I believe he said, Rochester, New York. And one of the problems that this neighborhood was having was a high infant mortality rate. Not a lot of mothers going to the doctor. There weren't a lot of doctor's offices in the neighborhood. And there had at one time been, there was a program, it was either through the state or a charitable program through one of the hospitals uh, that offered a clinic for prenatal care in this neighborhood. Now, at some point, 
one of the fundamentalist churches in the neighborhood got upset because they were pushing birth control, and the clinic was actually asked to leave the neighborhood based on the fact that they were providing birth control. Alinsky said he discovered that the only thing they had to do to get that clinic to come back and open up was to ask them to come to the neighborhood. So he picked that as their first target of opportunity in his process of trying to organize this community. Now, he said he did not let the people on the committee know that the only thing they had to do was request that this group come back in and open up the office again. So he said he trained all the people on that committee. He said, we're going to go in. You know, we're going to start talking. We're not going to let them get a word in edgewise. And at the end of it, we're just going to tell them, you know, this is what we want. Are you going to do it? Yes or no. And he said that they went in and they were talking to a young woman that was part of this group, and, and he said that she was trying very hard to let them know that all they had to do was ask, but he, he said he did not let her get a word in edgewise until the very end that he just said yes or no, and he said the young lady said, well, of course, yes, and he said they, he just he got everybody out of the room immediately. He didn't let there be any discussion. Again, that's very pragmatic. To me, that seems manipulative. Um, he even mentions in the book, uh, before you label this as trickery, please understand you what you're trying to do. And of course, he says, you know, the ends justify the means. And as much as I feel that that is a little bit manipulative, I have to agree that that is a good way to get things rolling. You know, we always hear baby steps, you know, you get a couple of little wins under your belt and the bigger wins will just seem to fall into place. And we see it in sports too. You know, how often do you see a football team that's really struggling to move the ball on offense and then they just settle down at some point and it's like the coach just says, you know, look, we're not going to go out and score a touchdown this first play, just pick up a first down. That's the start. Pick up that first first down. And once the team gets that first down, suddenly they make another second, and then they're just marching up and down the field. Everybody needs that little confidence booster from time to time to get them rolling on the right path. And Alinsky uses that as an analogy for another fact of the organizational lifestyle, which is you have to keep things moving. Um, you can't let people kind of run out of steam. That's another good way or another good reason to have little wins along the way. It keeps people motivated. He says, once the movement stops moving, the movement is dead. If you're not going toward a goal, there's no reason for the organization to exist. He even says, organizations need action as individuals need oxygen. The cessation of action brings death to the organization. And again, this is a very pragmatic approach to organizing in a community like this. I, I think that this is where a lot of movements eventually meet their downfall, though, because unfortunately, a lot of times a movement will start with uh, good intentions. You know, there's a good thing they're trying to do. There's a definite problem. This needs to be addressed. The problem is, is once they address that issue, that a lot of times they don't really want to stop moving. They, they just keep going. And that's where we see things that go from an understandable and reasonable course of action into crazy land. Uh, take PETA, for example. You know, PETA began trying to improve welfare for animals in this country and, or all over the world. And I don't know anybody that is not for the ethical treatment of animals. But at some point along the way, they've kind of jumped the shark. You know, they're doing crazy ads that are just lies, like the ad where they're saying, you know, this is the rest of your wool sweater, and they've got a little lamb that I swear looks like it went through a meat grinder. And I don't know if the people at PETA just don't understand that shearing a sheep is just a haircut and it does not hurt the animal whatsoever, or if it's just an out-and-out -out lie. Either way is not good. If you're in a group that purports to want to 
promote the welfare of animals and you don't understand the very basics of farming, you probably are a little out of your depth. I feel like it was probably just a lie. They think that most people aren't going to know that you don't have to skin a sheep to get the wool off of it. And they're just trying to manipulate people at that point. Now, you can argue that what they're trying to manipulate people into believing is a good thing, but I don't think that makes it okay. I don't buy into the ends justify the means, particularly in this situation. So to sum up that thought, I'm all for a movement having a goal and trying to reach that goal, but I disagree with Alinsky in that when you reach that goal, it's time for that particular movement to end, because that is the moment that a lot of these things just go off into crazy town and stop making any sense. And at that point, they're really doing more harm than good, both to themselves and to society. Again, look at PETA. Do you trust anything that comes out of those idiots' mouth at this point? They have become a caricature of themselves and what they were trying to do originally, which again, when it started, that's a very good, noble goal that you're pushing for. Now you don't want people to kill cockroaches and infestations in their house. You have gone completely off the rails and nobody listens to you anymore because of that. So that is one thing that I really don't agree with Saul Linsky on. Uh, however, the last section of this chapter, I absolutely agree with. And this is one of those things where if Saul Alinsky was alive today and he was preaching this particular facet of his philosophy, uh, he would be tarred and feathered by the progressive left. Because while Saul Alinsky a lot of times was trying to get you know, government programs established, get government money, uh, he was very much so against the idea of handouts. And it's because Saul Alinsky understood that if you come in and you just do stuff for people, it doesn't mean anything to them. If they don't have a hand in improving their situation, if they don't have some skin in the game, it doesn't mean anything to people. That is not a tenet of the progressive left's philosophy at this point. In fact, most of the time, the progressive left is telling people that they can't do anything about their situation, that they have to have the government come in. They have to have their betters, for lack of a better term, to come in and show them how they need to go about their lives. There is a radio host that I used to listen to years ago. His name is Mike McConnell. I'm sure he's still on the radio. It's gotten a little hard for me to track him down for some reason. But he said something years ago that, that I absolutely loved, is that, that Democrats pretend to care about poor people, but they wind up treating them like pets. And that's exactly what they do. They, they treat these people like, you know, you don't have any ability to take care of your own life. You're going to have to let us do everything for you. You just sit there and wait on that check to show up every month. Now, Saul Linsky did not agree with that thinking whatsoever. I have one last excerpt from the book I would like to read to you. To give people help while denying them a significant part in the action contributes nothing to the development of the individual. In the deepest sense, it is not giving but taking, taking their dignity. Denial of the opportunity for participation is the denial of human dignity and democracy. It will not work. Now, I don't know about you, that does not sound like anything coming out of the left in this day and age. If Saul Linsky was here and he said that, Twitter would just rip him to shreds. Facebook would censor his content. YouTube would take down his YouTube videos. The left would go nuts if Saul Alinsky came to 2021 and said that phrase into a microphone. They would lose their collective minds. All right, guys, that 
brings us to the end of the chapter. Uh, like I said, that was a little more nuts and bolts than the chapters have been leading up to. As I said, we're three quarters of the way through the book, so there's probably two or three more chapters that I'll do episodes on, and that will bring this little series to an end. But as of right now, that is all I've got for you today, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you're enjoying the series on Rules for Radicals. If you are enjoying it, please leave me a like and a comment and subscribe to the show if you're really enjoying things. As always, you can leave me a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or you can go to the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your weekend. We will talk again on Monday and have a good one. Thank you very much.